welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Thank you, Susan, for that awesome introduction. And thank you, Jeremy Crow, for that last talk. That's a hard act to follow, let me tell you. Um, has anyone ever read that book, There's a Monster at the End of This Book? You know what I'm talking about? Right, and it's Grover, and it's Sesame Street, and like, you know, every, every page, Grover's like, you know, he's trying to nail down the pages, and he doesn't want you to move on to the next page, and he keeps warning you, there's a monster at the end of this book, please, please, don't go any further. I have some personal theories about this. Um, for starters, I think this is an excellent model for the ultimate occult tome. Because isn't that the same feeling you have when you're approaching you know, what you imagine to be the ultimate occult tome? Everyone tells you, all the people that know better and know what's best for you, say, don't read that book. That's not a good book. But you know there's something in there. And you know if you go and you read it, you start reading it, and it's like, well, what's going to be at the end of it? What am I going to find out at the end of it? Is it going to be a monster? Like, is fucking Cthulhu going to come out of it and eat me? Or maybe the monster is really my friend, like Grover. Or maybe the monster is really me at the end. So anyhow, this is just a personal theory of mine, I think, perhaps. Um, if I studied it deeply enough, we could find that there's a correlation between people who really took a strong imprint with that book at a young age. Because how old were you when you read it? Like five? It was read to you, you know, by a teacher? Things like that stay with you in life. These impressions that you receive, they stay with you in life. And they crystallize in certain ways and help lead you towards new opportunities. Well, I can promise you that Grover is not at the end of this talk. <laughs> I'm not going to promise that there's not going to be a monster at the end of the talk. But what I can tell you will be at the end of this talk is the realization that you already have right in front of you everything that you need to have ultimate success and to achieve the self-consciousness that you desire 
and that right in front of you, within your grasp, is a unique and special form of power. It is the only type of power that can be wielded without violating the rights of anyone else. It's a form of power that is at once ancient and at once strikes you as being the most new and unique thing. Why does it seem new if it's ancient? Well, why does it seem new if it's been right there around you? Well, because you've been blinded to it. All of our lives, all of our upbringing, all of our indoctrination has been geared towards training us and conditioning us to not be able to see the incredible potential that we have been born into this world with and that is actually part of our birthright from the very beginning. We've been blinded from it. We've been robbed from it. It's a type of food for conscious life. The Hindus called it prana. The Nordic shamans called it phlegia. The Egyptians called it puat. The Taoist alchemists, chi. And if you go back far enough, you encounter the Zoroastrians who called it athra. And they represented it with a fire. So you remember what we did last night? Standing around a fire there. So were you aware that that's a 7,000 year old practice? And one of the first things that man did to try and to connect with the principle of consciousness, the principle of self-awareness, the principle of isolate intelligence. And there's other modern ideas, modern words that approach this idea, like odic fluid, vril. Wilhelm Reich talked about something called orgone, developed some machines based on it. And the Greeks knew about it too. So Aristotle once said, the energy of the mind is the essence of life. And the Greek Gnostics knew about it too. They knew that it was a word uttered by the Magus Yeshua in Matthew 6.11 and comes to us in the word, the, the Greek Hapax Legomenon the word epiusios, which my friend Keith there might know something about that. No, you take it away. <laughs> <laughs> the Greek word epiusios, which um, in Latin is translated as supersubstantial. So long story short, I think everyone's probably familiar with the line uh, from, the, from the Gospels, give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so long story short, the original line for this was, give us this day our super substantial bread. Oh, yeah. But somewhere, someone along the line decided, um, no, that's not good. Uh, we can't have people thinking that. Or else they quite simply didn't understand what the word meant. 
And so they made a decision to call this daily bread, your ordinary bread. You know, just please, please give me just whatever I'm supposed to have. Thank you, Master. Let me uh, supplicate myself a little bit more. But no, it's your super substantial bread. It is the super substantial influence that is right in front of you that you were in fact designed to be able to consume, process, and achieve a higher form of nourishment. So my whole talk could have been about just that, super substantial. Let's just talk about that for an hour. But I'm going to focus on a uh, more time-honored left-hand path nomenclature for this concept, and that will be the black flame. The word itself, which is a reiteration of flambeau noir, dark forge, and what kind of flame comes out of a dark forge? Yes, the black flame. So in a very real sense, the black flame is the reason that we are all gathered here now in this fine city of Portland at this most unique moment of time to connect and to partake in a unique quality of energy that does not frequently make itself available. And I hold that the black flame indeed refers to a type of food for conscious life. It provides a special kind of nourishment for it. So there's different types of food. Let's talk about qualities of food, differences between types of qualities of food. So, and I don't mean the difference between hot dogs and hamburgers or the difference between steak and vegan. So let's say we have our ordinary, ordinary food that we receive, that, that we have, that we eat. Food and water, it's, it's all in basically the same category. This goes into our body, it goes through a process, it gets, it gets processed, and it becomes nourishment for a certain aspect of our existence. And then we have another type of food, another thing that we take into our bodies. It's the breath, it's the air. We, we receive it, we hold it in, and we release it, and through this process, Yet another form of nourishment comes into us. Well, there's a third form of food. There's a third form of nourishment. And this comes to us in the form of higher influences through consciously received impressions. And this is the key here. This is the thing that we have been trained not to see fully and not to be able to process fully. And the other thing about this type of food is that it has to be it has to be voluntarily taken and it has to be willfully taken. It has to be willfully done. So you can like pump someone up with oxygen and keep them alive if they don't give a fuck. And you can put a feeding tube in them and keep them alive, pumping these other types of food into them. But the higher forms of food you can't force on anyone, right? I mean that's a that's a theme that has reiterated itself several times here. Uh, throughout the talks that we've been having. You can't force feed someone initiation. I can't force you to be enlightened. Someone has to like intentionally, willfully begin pursuing that. 
And so this is all intimately tied in with the idea of an individual quest, a personal search for truth and meaning in one's existence. And so it's also intimately tied in with what we call the left-hand path. And when we get to the end of this, I'm going to tell you about three things that you can do with the black flame. I'm going to talk about how you can receive it, how you can hold it, how you can release it. So it might be useful to talk a little bit um, about what left-hand path is and contrast it with what right-hand path is. And for one thing, it is, is about contrast. The idea of a path is that it starts, they, they, they start in different places and they lead to different places. And they don't represent merely different shades along a continuum. Right? We don't talk about the navy blue path and the, the aqua blue path. Maybe I'll find an orange path. No, we're talking about complete, uh, complete you know, light versus absence of light. So it's about contrast, and it's about how you have to make a choice. Again, you have to make a willful choice to be able to receive something higher. You can also look at the paths in terms of how they take man, the appearance of man, on earth. So the right-hand path begins with an idealized, an idealized system, an idealized order of like um, how things should be. And who decided how things should be? Well, they say this comes down from, from, from uh, God and is interpreted by um, experts who know how to interpret God's will, and they've decided what are, are all the rules that everyone needs to abide by and follow without exception. Or sometimes it's like groups of experts, you know. Um, back in the old days, it was mostly, mostly priesthoods. Um, nowadays, it's probably mostly politicians and bureaucrats. But in either, either case, the structure is always the same. The pattern is always the same. It's an idealized order. Man is obliged to fit into it. Left-hand path takes man, begins taking man as he is found, which is an individual who is designed with a proclivity for individuality, free will, and consciousness. So this line of thinking in modern times has gone through a, a series of stages Jeremy spoke of our magical ancestors, the idea of our magical ancestors. So I'm going to follow this line quickly through some, some folks that I consider uh, my magical ancestors. So in uh, 1904, an Englishman named Aleister Crowley came upon a word, thelema, which means will, which is a summary of do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. What an amazing expression of man as an individual who has no right but to do his will, and none have any right to violate that. So 
so what is the truth? What is the law? It's freedom of will. And he said that you're a star. Each of you is a star in the sky. You have your own place in the universe that is yours and no one else's. And you have your own planetary influences. They orbit around you. You don't orbit around them. And you know what? There's enough room in all of the great cosmos for everyone to enjoy this freedom and not impede upon each other's paths. Then in uh, 1966, an American named Anton LaVey took this fundamental principle of individuality and called out to it with the word indulgence. Indulgence instead of abstinence. And so he started talking about these ideas on a moral level. He's talking about a certain morality. I know that word, that word kind of like has a little, little tinge for a lot of us. A lot of us might have a bad taste in our mouth just with that word in general. And it's tempting to say, you know, I'm beyond good and evil. Like uh, Jeremy mentioned Nietzsche, who wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil. But Nietzsche was not actually a moral. He was talking about a morality, a higher morality, a morality that is predicated on the apprehension of individual existence, a morality of individualism rather than a morality of self-sacrifice, coercion, and obedience. So, I mean, this is clear. Uh, anyone ever uh, read the Satanic Bible? I had a feeling there'd be a few in this group. So, if you look through the, the, the nine Satanic statements, I mean, clearly this is a morality. He says, indulgence instead of abstinence. In other words, indulgence good. Abstinence bad. <laughs> Wisdom instead of hypocrisy. Wisdom is good and virtuous and strong. Hypocrisy is weak and it's the way of the parasite. Responsibility instead of psychic vampirism. Again, responsibility to the responsible. Making your own way, taking responsibility for yourself and your existence on this, on this planet. That is the good and virtuous way not to feed off of the accomplishments of others and act as though they're your own and siphon others' energy. So with LeVay, you have left-hand path on a moral level. Then in 1975, a student of Anton LeVay named Michael Aquino came upon another word. The word was kefir, an Egyptian verb, which means become. And then he starts to take these ideas that other people have been talking about, Aleister Crowley and Anton LaVey. From a moral level, he takes it to a metaphysical level. He starts talking about the principle of isolate intelligence. And he starts talking about, you were designed like this. Your psyche is designed to be separate from the universe. That's why you have a subjective universe that can distinguish itself as being unique and different than the objective universe around us. And you were designed like that. Why were you designed like that? For a reason, for a purpose, to do something, to have will, to enact will, to become. 
And then there's, you know, there's a lot of things that happen with Anton LaVey and Michael Aquino. There's a lot of some stuff. And somewhere, somewhere in this big whirlwind, in the early days of the Church of Satan, this clear conception of left-hand path starts to emerge, as well as this symbolism of the black flame to represent it. It emerges in ceremonial texts. It emerges in graphic artwork and designs from the then fledgling movement. In uh, Anton's book, The Satanic Rituals, he refers to the black flame in the ceremony of baptism. And he says, They who walk amongst us who bear deceit, verily they shall perish in blindness. Turn thy back on the vile and despise them. Follow the black flame to unending beauty in mind and body. So this idea of fire being an energizing source for independence and, and intelligence appears repeatedly throughout Michael Aquino's book, The Diabolicon, uh, which is a series of testimonies from these various demonic personages. And it, it runs similarly to uh, Paradise Lost um, and, and kind of like follows the same sort of patterns. Is anyone familiar with The Diabolicon? Remember that? Yeah? Yeah. So, Michael Aquino wrote this book while he's dodging mortar fire in the jungles of Vietnam. And the statement of Beelzebub from that book is actually destroyed. It was blown up by an enemy shell, rewritten. So if you, read that, if you read that book, you know the statement of Beelzebub in there. That's the second version of it. You can only assume that Beelzebub uh, didn't like the first version. <laughs> So, and the other thing is that the Diabolicon, it's a book about war. It's a book about these demons going to war. What do they go to war for? The Black Flame. They go to the war first for their own right, their own ability to keep and hold and have the Black Flame, to have consciousness and will for themselves and freedom for themselves. And then they go to war again Later on, after man receives the black flame, after we, conscious life on earth, receives the black flame and becomes aware of itself and starts doing the things that conscious beings do, celebrating, building, creating, working their magic in the universe. And so, of course, as, as, as it always happens, there's forces in the universe that don't want that to happen. They don't think that's good. They know what's best for everyone. And so the forces of inertia, the angelic forces move in to dampen that. And so the demons go to war again. And I'll tell you, the war is still going on right now. It's a war to dampen consciousness. It's a war to dampen individuality, and it's a war to dampen the liberty of all conscious persons. And so this is another thing that I think probably most people in this room have learned already, is that to pursue that, to pursue that path, to pursue the way of consciousness, is a way of struggle. It's a way of struggle with all the people in society who don't agree with it and think it's a bad thing. 
but it's also an internal struggle. It's a way of internal struggle with yourself, with the parts of yourself that uh, get, get you know, pulled down by the inertia, the parts of yourself that are afraid, the parts of yourself that have regret, that have negativity. You learn to struggle with these. So it is a way of struggle and war. Does anybody remember Azazel from last night? I met a lot of people last night. I remember most, I might have forgotten a few people's names, but I remember Azazel. So Azazel appears in the Diabolicon as the demons are undertaking the great Luciferian exodus from heaven. And he says, Lucifer is vanquished, but he is not unmade. And with the power of his black flame, he hath created a hell wherein all wills are equal. And so a question emerges here. What does that look like, all wills are equal? Wouldn't that be anarchy? Can we do that? Can we let, let everyone be running around having their own free wills? And the demons are worried about this too in the book. They're worried about what's going to happen as they travel out into that outer darkness. They fear they shall be unmade without the power of heaven keeping them together. And this is what the central authority does under its power. It convinces you that you cannot live without it. It's keeping you alive. The same thing that's oppressing you, it's keeping you alive and feeding you here right now, too. So the way of the left-hand path is the way of waking up. It's waking up to this lie. But the demons are naturally somewhat concerned about this as they journey out into the great unknown, as any rational person would be. But Lucifer told them, we shall not perish, for now we are independent of God. And initially, some think that hell is going to be just another heaven, right? Same, uh, you know, same, same king, or, or different king, you know, same, you know. And Lucifer said, lo, see that I am not God, and that we are each of us an isolate being. Here shall freedom be absolute, for hell itself shall reflect our several wills. And in truth, hell was not constant, for each of us conceived it differently, and the result was a riotous pandemonium. You know what that word means, pandemonium? It means place of all daemons. It means there is a place where all can live with their free wills and no one's rights will be violated because no one will be concerned about violating anyone else's rights. In other words, they realize that that idealized vision of order, the idealized vision of a central authority isn't actually needed. It's not actually keeping us alive. It's like um, they realize that God is uh, like from the Wizard of Oz, and he says, ignore that man behind the curtain. It's not real. It's all smoke and mirrors. You don't need that to survive. It's also kind of like when you're a kid, and you're riding your first bike, and your parents, like, take the, they're, they're going to take the training wheels off of it. You're like, oh, shit, I'm going to fall down. But they take off the training wheels, and maybe you wobble a bit first, but then you get going. And you're like, hey... I can ride faster. I can ride 
freer. So eventually the demons bring their fire down to man. And the demon Azazel witnesses the black flame being sent to earth by the demons as a blessing to mankind. And he says, but on earth, where man wandered in mindless bliss, the firmament blazed forth with fiery tongues. And all the land was covered by the black flame, which burned not, though it bewildered the eye to see it. And as a result of this, man becomes conscious and starts doing conscious things. So you could roughly uh, place this maybe at least two million years ago, but possibly as much as seven million years ago. The record for conscious human beings on Earth keeps getting pushed back the more anthropologists and geneticists like study the question. But this I consider a uh, first intervention. And so this giving of the flame to man, of course, begins another war because God and his angels just can't, you know, it's just too dangerous to have men running around, individuals being conscious. So they make another attempt to bring down that divine yoke on man. And so this period, you can relate uh, roughly with the agricultural revolution and the first uh, monarchistic military states, the rising of monotheism, roughly 10,000 BC, somewhere in there. And this is something that I consider a second intervention. And not necessarily every intervention is good or by necessarily in our best interest. If you want to know more about my, my ideas about first and second interventions, you can read about them in the Arabeth transmissions. So we've had a couple, uh, maybe even more, cosmic injections of divine fire. And it's all around us, here and now. So finally, we're starting to come to what might be the monster at the end of this book. So in the beginning, I said that there's three things that you can do with the black flame. You receive it, you hold it, you can release it. It's kind of like breath. You receive it, you breathe in, you hold it, you release it. And in that moment, you gain another opportunity to process what you have. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the receiving. And here, the primary aim is to be able to open yourself to higher quality influences. And so you also need to be able to identify higher quality influences that you come across. So I think one of the uh, great systems for this, for approaching this question, uh, was given by uh, the philosopher and the Armenian philosopher and teacher of dance, G.I. Gurdjieff. He talked about A, B, and C influences. So the idea is that there's three types of influences that we come across over the course of life. The first one, A influences, this refers to simply the ordinary influences of life that we encounter all day, every day, you know. 
uh, politics, sports, pretty much anything on television. Um, you know, new cars, and you know, things like this. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with those influences. You just need to understand that they are what they are. There's nothing bad about it. I'm not saying you should avoid, you know, anything like that. I'm not uh, suggesting some sort of asceticism or a monastic lifestyle to avoid the influences of life. They can be great. They're a great source of uh, indulgence and pleasure and getting the things that we need and sustenance. Nothing wrong with them at all. But they don't have that higher quality. They don't have something that's going to like help us. It's going to be food for uh, a higher sort of existence. So the next kind of influences that we come across we call B influences. So B influences are a little bit different. And it has to do with what makes them different is where they originate from. So these are influences, for the most part, they come to us through things like arts, literature, sometimes architecture. You know, many great texts could be an example of B influences. Um, you know, the pyramids, the Giza, the Sphinx, the Gothic cathedrals. And, and what, makes that, what makes them a different sort of influence is where they originate. And it's because they originate from schools. And when I say a school, I'm not talking about public school, for, for starters. I'm talking about schools as being groups of people who get together with the common aim of trying to escape the prison of ordinary existence. Because man's situation, as he finds himself, is that he is essentially in prison. So, um, anyone seen The Matrix? Okay, same idea. You awaken for a moment. I think everyone here has probably experienced this. You awaken for a moment and you realize, wow, I'm here. I'm a unique thing. What am I? Why am I here? All these questions emerge. Incredible sense of awareness. And then what happens after that? Well, we fall back asleep, you know, because there's no one around us that can really like relate to that, and there's nothing you know we can really do about it. So we also like fall back asleep. So we may, at one point, after this happens a few times, we realize that we're essentially in this prison. So if you, a man is a rational man, what can he hope for? after realizing that he is in prison, other than to escape. It's the only thing that can matter once you realize that you are not a free individual. But you can't escape from prison on your own, right? Because you need to make plans. You need to find tools. You need to find a few other people who also want to escape, who've also woken up, and they realize that there's another world out there. So, but, but not everyone can escape. That never happens, right? Everyone escaping from prison at once doesn't happen. It's, you know, quite simply, it's, uh, it would be too obvious. You know, mechanical forces would move against it. There's too much inertia against it. So a few can escape. 
So this whole idea of a few people can escape, this is the basis for a school, for an esoteric school. You know, we can think of like, you know, Pythagoras's, you know, academy or something like that is a good example of that. Anyone ever see that movie with Donald Duck where he's like shooting pool? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Secret societies. No, they showed us that when we were kids, and it's like they were telling us, no, this is like, you know, music, the scales, this comes from an initiatory school. It comes from secret societies. The phi ratio, this comes from secret societies, and it's the basis of architecture, it's the basis of the pyramid. So, so that's B influences. B influences have their origins somewhere else. So let's talk about the third kind of influences, and that's C influences. And C influences are consciously received impressions. This is the essence of the black flame right here. And the reason B influences are an important step in the process of being able to access C influences is because you have to find the right people. That's the secret of it. So someone asked, uh, once asked Timothy Leary, he said, um, well, I, I've woken up, now what? What do you do next? And Timothy Leary said, you find the others. You find the others. And again, this is the pattern throughout the Diabolicon that the Davids are pursuing too. They're finding each other, and they're finding the others. So, so that is a key to understanding the reception, the receptive aspect of the black flame. That you have to start looking for the better influences, the finer influences, the super substantial influences that are around you. And as you begin to receive those influences, they begin to have a different kind of effect on you. It's not just like, oh, I read, a, I read this great idea, and it's a great idea, and you share it with people. No, it's great, it's good ideas, but there's some ideas that have a, a more profound effect. They actually have a transformative effect on you, and they start to create within you something uh, that they call um, magnetic center. And what that means is that you start to become a magnet for more of these super substantial influences. And you start to have a magnetic quality for the other people who are trying to escape. And so it helps you find the right people at the same time that you're trying to find the source of the higher influences, the super substantial influences. So the daemons, they receive the black flame maybe by accident, but then they go to war to continue holding it. They go to war to continue holding it for the right to continue holding it. And then later they release it to man and then go to war again for man's right to hold it. So there's something special about the holding piece of it. There's something about it that demands that struggle to be able to continue to hold it. So you think about it, when you breathe in, you hold your breath, struggle starts to, starts to take me over here, and I can't do it forever. So the primary aim with the holding phase 
can be surmised as energy conservation is the key. Everyone's heard that before. And all you have to do is realize that it has to do with your being as much as it has to do with any, any supposed fuel crisis. And you remember that the black flame is a kind of food. And there is an internal process of digestive transformation. You can study the jackal for this. It can help if you practice different body systems, like yoga, martial arts, tai chi, many systems like this are actually ways of training yourself to be able to work with these higher energies and to be able to hold these higher energies. And at some level, just trying to stay physically fit, eating right, getting enough sleep, just the basic common sense stuff. One of our biggest problems in our day-to-day -day lives is that we aren't able to hold our energy in it. We feel it, we get some energy and we just feel it right out. Especially with the emotions. So here's another thing you can do is you start observing your emotional responses and your reactivity and observing them is nice but here's what you really need to try to do is you try to not express negative emotions you just try to not express them and there's a couple of practical reasons for this I mean negative emotions are one of the most common ways that we just spill our energy out and just you know and whenever we have a negative reaction, it's always something that someone else gave us. It's like a contagion that people like pass on to each other. And how can you stop that? Well, you can't stop what everyone else is doing. People are going to talk shit, you know. People are going to be haters. I mean, what are you going to do? Well, what you can do is stop the cycle by not expressing it. And what you do there is you, you do yourself a favor because you get to keep some energy. And you also do the world a favor because you don't spread some more negativity to someone else. So over time, all these influences that you hold, the positive influences that you hold, and the negative influences that you refuse to hold, help lead you again to these higher, more higher influences and more better, better people. Again, which help draw to you the influences and the people that you need. So now I'm going to talk about releasing. The thing about releasing energy is it's like, I can also call it expelling, and I can also call it excreting. It's a form of excretion, right? Because all the regular foods that we're talking about, how do we release them? Well, we excrete them. And that's nasty and dirty. However, it's also a nourishing thing for other parts of life, other aspects of life. So the same thing happens with the impressions that we receive. We release them. So a really great way of looking at this is like when we release our magic into the universe. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is if, uh, if you're a... Uh, creative type, if you're a musician, any musicians? I had a feeling. Any writers? Yeah? How about art? Is there any artists? Have any of you like uh, ever like put your creations out into the world? How did that make you feel? Like I was doing my will. All right. 
and kind of scary too when you're putting it out, right? When you go into when you're an artist and you're like, you know, you're working on your stuff, whatever, you're writing something, you're uh, doing some music, you always have that fear. Oh, if I put this out there, what are people going to say? Are they going to say it sucks? Are they going to laugh? But then you find some courage. It takes courage to do that. And then you put your stuff out there. And then what happens? Well, lots of things can happen. And we'll go out and do that. But you know, you're going to see it out there. And you're going to see it affecting things in the universe. And when you see that, it's going to change you. It's going to change your relationship to your creation. And in that moment, you have an opportunity to grow from that creation. And then you start to learn that that experience that you gain as a result of it, maybe that's why I'm creating things. Maybe it's not because it was going to be the ultimate book or the ultimate album or the ultimate picture, whatever. But it's that experience that I get back from it. Maybe that's the real value of it. And maybe that's how I do something in return. That's the exchange. Because there's this other law. It's the law of no free lunch. And it's the law of exchange. And maybe that's how I give something back to the universe that I have like taken from. And from the many other conscious beings that I have interacted with over the course of my time here. Well, we've talked about a lot of things today. We talked about the left-hand path. We talked about morality. We talked about the black flame. And taken in the right context, all of this can lead towards finding a definiteness of purpose and can lead toward you becoming something that is actually able to act upon the situation rather than being the thing that is always acted upon. All of this leads towards you becoming something more real, more aware, and more psychocentric. All of this leads towards you becoming super substantial. Thank you very much. Well, I think I did good with time, didn't I? So I can take questions if anyone has a yes. So all this talk of food will clearly uh, be substantial. I wonder, um, if you guys know the music yet, are you familiar with the uh, right of uh, saying will before a meal? What is it? Saying will. I don't think so. Um, I could probably demonstrate it to you later with the information, but basically, it's like uh, you make a statement of do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. What is thy will? It is our will to eat and to drink. To what end that we may fortify our bodies thereby? To what end yeah. that we may do battle yeah. positively? Yeah. No, actually, no, I know exactly what you're talking about now. And no, that's another great example. There are so many instances where literally they talk about, I mean, I could, I, I could have gone on another hour quoting things, where they talk about will and, and the black flame, and they talk about it like it's food. They talk about it like it's nourishment. You know, it's like that's, that's very, very true. And that's an excellent example of it uh, from the. Uh, it's not the book of the law. It's something else. It's a sub something else. He subsequently, yeah.
Basically, yeah. it's a way to align yourself with your true will and what you're also taking into yourself. Because you don't want to be, you know, you can basically transform anything that you're consuming into spiritual substance. Yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Same thing. Yep. Definitely. Yes, season. I think um, I think that that is a different. That's a that's a type of anger that's that's different than um, negative emotions. I'm talking about. That's a type of like that that anger arises from the realization of your situation. As uh, Gurdjieff called it, uh, the terror of the situation. When you realize um, what's been going on, you know. You're Neo, and you like wake up, and you're like, "Oh my God, I've been, you know, I'm, I'm a machine. I'm a, you know, I'm a, yeah." So it's very, it's a very rational response to become angry at that situation. That's that's a different situation than you know, uh, he was just a dick, and then and I get all negative about people, right? About how people have interacted or what people have said and things like that. It's a different like kind of thing. Um, it's a, but what, you, what you're talking about, that's a deep sort of like initiatory anger and terror and maybe, um, maybe connected with uh, Malamu that uh, Michael Ford had mentioned earlier, that the sort of experience that arises from that. Because you have to get angry to change that situation. You have to struggle to change that situation. You have to fight to change it. Yeah, so I feel like that's always kind of been a source of that for me, and it has that creative potency, and it's like, you know, the uh, initiator and the instigator of a whole cycle in the Zodiac. Um, you know, like Aries is the first one, it was like, ah, oh, like, you know, mm -hmm. the one that, uh, the, the, that spark, that initial spark. And so that's, that's how I relate to Black Flame, and you're talking about like carrying and holding it, and I'm like, yeah. You know, and for me, like, it's just constant having to get pissed off about things and reacting to that super <laughs> shit and get better at it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeremy. Um, I thought it was really interesting when you said find the others. Uh-huh. And the whole concept of the others and the otherworldliness or even just otherness of the others. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if you could address that concept of the otherness 
<laughs> the otherness of the others is because they're a non-natural influence. That's why. They're not a natural influence. The others are not within nature. They're not na a naturally appearing thing. It's an unnatural act. You know, We talk about the unholy rites and the unnatural act. And it's the same thing um, when you take it into a... Um, when people start talking about like UFOs and stuff and UFO contact and stuff like that. It's a similar sort of thing. This is a way of expressing uh, non-natural um, uh, influences. It's an influence from outside the ordinary ordering of our existence. So when you find other people, you go through this process of finding other people who are trying to escape, this leads you to the otherness. I mean, this is the secret that you realize, is that the otherness is within other people. The otherness is within me. The non-naturalness is, is within me. It's, it's, it's a providence of my psyche. That's why my psyche was designed with this unnatural ability to be an independent, free-thinking thing that doesn't really appear anywhere else in the natural ordering of things. So we represent this idea. It's really abstract. Okay, we have to find new ways of talking about this. They don't teach us about this in school, you know. Um, I really, when they read, there's a monster at the end of this book. I think that's probably as close as they ever, you know, come, you know, in preschool. They're teaching you about these things. Awesome! Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, definitely. And just to bring that otherness to the. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a that's that's a, that's a thing with um, uh, Setian Setian teaching and Setian uh, philosophies that within the Egyptian pantheon, Set is like uh, an unknown and every other Egyptian uh, deity has an identifiable human or animal head. You know, Thoth is a, an ibis and, and uh, you know, Anubis. Uh, well, they said Anubis was a jackal for many years, but you know what, that's, that's fucking wrong. That's another lie. <laughs> it was made up by the first Europeans that came in and they said, well, yeah, it's this like, it's this like really like mean dog. And now they think it's actually the Egyptian red wolf which was like a, 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 an animal that would like find you, like if you were like lost on the, in the desert at night, the Egyptian red wolf would like come up and, 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 and find people and help you find, lead people to food and lead people to safety. And it was like a friend, it was a guide. So if you're gonna have your Egyptian God, who's like your guide through the underworld, are you gonna represent it with this, this mean fucking dog that likes to eat flesh? Or are you going to represent it with this nice dog that's a friend to man that's going to lead you to darkness? I'm sorry, I got off topic. We were talking about Set. So Set, as opposed to these other Egyptian deities, is an unidentified creature. There's like, and, and, and this is something you can study. If you study Egyptology, there's a good book called uh, Seth, God of Confusion, by an Egypt, a French Egyptologist named Tevelde. Um, where he studies all the influence. They don't know what set is. It's like this. I think maybe, maybe it's an ass. Maybe it's an anteater. It could be these other things. So yeah, that's the idea, is that amongst that whole pantheon, set represents the unnatural, non-natural. Unnatural is a different kind of thing. Oh, what's, that's, that's more of a Lovecraftian. What's that unnatural thing? Non-natural, though, meaning um, outside of the natural order. I would actually bring up this morning that 
tough to be a more suitable adversary. And especially with the serpent injury, which later was translated into the Caduceus serpent as a CFF. Um, so, um, Apophis and, and the serpent, I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can go with, like, that serpent. Kind of drawing a parallel to Typhon. Right, no, this is a parallel to Typhon. And, 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 and it, the serpent can be taken that way, too. So if we're going to talk about, if we're going to go to a Judeo-Christian um, mythological cycle, then, oh yeah, 100%, the serpent is the non-natural influence in the Garden of Eden, absolutely. This is man's liberator. This is the one that brings, brings the knowledge of, of good and evil, which is the same as the knowledge of, of, of self. So absolutely, I, I, I mean, I think you can make that case for the serpent in a variety of ways. But then there's also, yeah, I mean, with serpent imagery, you also find um, the idea of the world serpent that, like, you know, circles everything. And you can draw parallel to the whirling would also tie Christian mythology to the seraphim. So. Sure. No, absolutely. No, I think that um, there's, there's plenty of valid ways of like symbolizing these things and with symbolism. Um, and I think that uh, Griffin made this point earlier during uh, his talk that um, the symbolism is, is there to like help you get to where you need, to find the things that you need. So finding that super substantial influence, that influence itself is not a symbol. I mean, that's one thing that I'm trying to say here right now, is that the black flame and all that is not just a symbol for something. It, beneath it, there's something real. There's something substantial. There's something super substantial. Keith? Yeah, I mean, you, you asked how I could see uh, a few seals, and I have to admit, it was driving me bananas. So I peeped in my Greek New Testament. It's a good place to have a New Testament secret. Agreed. And, 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 so it's very interesting. I notice it only occurs once in all of Greek literature yes. in that passage. Uh -huh. And this is just another comment. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's mistranslated as daily, give us our daily bread, but it's nothing of the kind. Right. Epi is over, and usios is like... Essence. Essence or reality or something, so it's like transcending reality, but... The significant thing I just wanted to mention is that whenever you have a word that only occurs once in the language, a, a hapax legomenon, that's when you really find magic going on in my experience. It's in the direction of what uh, Ford earlier was calling werba magica, you know, where uh, you're sort of speaking in tongues, glossolalia, but there's a, I mean, there's a deducible rationale behind that. It's not gibberish, but the moment people have to start making up words, then they're transcending ordinary thought. So it's always worth looking at those single occurrence words. And I just had to have my say. No, that's uh, thank you for thank you for contributing that. I agree with everything you said, 100%. Um, and yes, that word is a hapax legomenon. Occurs only once in the entire corpus of of the Greek language. And that's pretty significant if you think about that. That's pretty fucking mind blowing. And the uh, Greek version of the New Testament was, uh, is a uh, translation that we believe from an Aramaic uh, version of it. And I, last I heard, the Aramaic hasn't been found. But what this means is that the Greek translator of it, when they got to that word, they're like, what? It was so new and it was so abstract and so beyond their comprehension that they had to invent a totally new word for it a totally new word to describe whatever that was. 
Sandal that's unknown in ancient Egypt, representing the hidden. Yet within the Egyptian pantheon, he takes a bribe. Why does he the deity that is unnatural take a bribe? What does that mean? Would it be unnatural to be unnatural? Um, well, uh, certainly that's uh, you could def that's definitely a good case uh, for that. But here's the thing: is that you have to understand that that set in all of the pantheons, what happens is over periods of thousands of years, they get utilized. And in ancient Egypt, it's like um, you know the different different priesthoods are vying for like they're kind of like you know. The priesthoods in Egypt are kind of like, I don't know, like corporations are nowadays. They're all vying for power. They're vying for like to be on Pharaoh's side. Pharaoh's going to have his own like family, um, his family god. So, you know, the, you know, like Aleister Crowley liked to point out uh, this being like the aeon of Osiris, right? And so Osiris is like the popular god through, through most of like uh, the middle, middle kingdom. Of, of Egypt, except for the period of the, the Ramesside pharaohs, Ramses the first, Seti, and, and Ramses the third, the same guys in, in, uh, in uh, um, Ten Commandments. So if you ever, if you ever watched Ten Commandments with Yule Brenner and, and Charlton Heston on Easter, it's like, well, Yule Brenner, he's actually his family, they were a Seti, and they, they, they rose in this, like, Set, Set was like their family god. However, you're right, it's like how Set is represented, no, he's married Nephthys, and he's like, you know, it's like, the real non-natural stuff about Set appears in the pre-dynastic era. Yeah, I think it corresponds with that. But pre-dynastic, before the first pyramids of Zoser, you know this. You know, and I mentioned this time period on here. You've got to realize before you know that period, 10,000 BC, when it's like the first cities are coming up and everything, and you have the first monarchies and Pharaoh and. You know, Pharaoh, the steely of Narmer, and he's going around, you know, civilizing the world by bashing people's heads in, you know, that, you know, for like, um, you know, maybe like, you know, two million, seven million years, there were human beings on the planet that were just as intelligent as you and me. The exact same brain capacity of you and me for millions of years on this planet, and they never thought, oh, let's like, like bash some other people's heads in, take them over make them our slaves, have them work for us, have them build our stuff, and we'll have one guy like this, and we'll take everything. You know, no one came up with that. Just all of a sudden, that start, starts happening. So for a long, long time in Egypt before that, there was only two gods. There was Horus, and there was Set, as circumpolar deities. And when the kingdoms are united, you see the, there's the double crown, the double crown of Egypt, it's like the white, the white thing is like, that's from uh, Upper Egypt, represents Horus. And then, the, um, then there's like the serpentine band with the cobra thing, and that's from Lower Egypt. Right, the Urias, exactly. Um, and that's, that represents Set. And then when the kingdoms are united under Narmer, they put the two helmets together, and they're both together. And so you can see clearly at this point, it's, they've lost the original meaning of any. It's all being used to politicize things. It's ex the exact same thing as like, I can talk about, we can talk about uh, Magus Yeshua, Jesus, talking about this word, epiusia, super substantial. And we can talk about the kingdom of heaven representing a state of consciousness and all these really like amazing things. But you know what? All that shit got politicized a long time ago. And that is not the teaching of the Christianity that we all encounter out here, which is not about any of that stuff. It's not about any consciousness or becoming or anything about that or super substantial influences. It's about obedience. It's about obedience and control.
So that's what I think. A similar thing is like a similar thing happened in Egypt. Paul, do you mind if I can I add something? Please, I would love One it. One thing that you mentioned was Seth during the New England period with Ramsey. Uh, Seth was uh, assimilated and identified with Bal. Bal Hadad, the city of Newburgh in that region. He was a beneficial chaos bringer. Um, he fought, there's actual gems that they discovered, uh, kind of magical protection gems of Val, uh, Seth, Wayne, Apophis, uh, or the equivalent of Leviathan. So Seth has many different extensions of the Black Flame, I think, and when you look at it in the whole picture, uh, it fits really well within the Egyptian pantheon support of the whole. The Apophis, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, mentioned Apep again, because I was on the tip of my tongue earlier when we were talking about Apophis. I think this is one of the most profound bits of Egyptian mythology, is that Set slays Apophis, as Apophis represents delusion. So, this is what we've been talking about, is that the, the ability to achieve consciousness, to be consciousness, to be conscious, is a struggle. It's war. You have to actually fight. You can't just sit here and, oh, I'm going to become conscious and not do anything about it. No, you have to take action. You have to make some, you have to take action, and you have to make a choice, and you have to fight. And, you know, the worst thing is that uh, latest atrocious mummy movie made with Tom Cruise, where set, oh, yeah, that's... where set is, like, way worse than he was ever portrayed in yeah. his last movie. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't look forward at all to Seth becoming like more popular in the media. That's not something I'm really like looking forward to. Yes? Sure, it's just a little bit of humor because of the, A, a the movie reference, B, this question about what is said and, and what does it mean, and Please. the active versus passive. Um, uh, many, many years ago, Mad Magazine did a satire of the Conan the Barbarian movie with Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And in this, in this one frame, which is like a perfect little koan in my head, um, Conan encounters a monk and the monk says, may the ways of set be your ways, my friend. Uh -huh. And Conan says, thanks, but I'm already set in my ways. <laughs> <laughs> and then he beats the shit out of him too, doesn't he? <laughs> so no, it's, it's not a lie. I think most of us, the first time we heard of something called the Temple of Set, it was in Conan, for sure. You know. And it's James Earl Jones, high priest of Set. You know, they couldn't have chosen a better guy for that. Okay, one more question. He's giving me the wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I just want to actually um, sort of, I was, I was figuring a few more things out as we were sitting here, and um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend my process for everyone. I realized I'm an Aries moon as well, so that's nourishing for me to get pissed off. Wrap is like uh, a resource. It's like a fuel, you know, for my flame. <laughs> it stokes my fire. It energizes me. It is generally energizing, but I understand like different um, moon signs would have different forms. Of, of expression that would be more nourishing for them. And my, my way of actually holding that is, is by using that as fuel to transmute the experience. And so it's like a, um, like it, it instigates, uh, you know, that, that transmutative process. Oh, yeah. No, and if you can hold it, that's one of the secrets of alchemy. If you hold that within you, you, trans, you transform it. 
And we do this with ordinary food. That's one of the secrets with food and why we think of it as food, because that's what you do with ordinary food. You take, you know, just organic matter from out here, you take it into your system, you transform it into life, into life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good stuff. All right. Thank you, everybody. Where did we come from? The answers lie in another part of the universe, some 40,000 light years from our own sun, on a line with the constellation. Fifth planet out from its sun. E. The fifth planet out from its sun.